Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 201, Resistance and Acceptance. Now, first, I want to sh- give a big shout out to Vensi Naidenova for making a generous contribution and to Christian De Vries, De Vries uh, for becoming a ma- uh, regular patron. Also, great meeting you recently in Sofia, Christian. And with that, let's get into it. So, last time we did a short kind of recap of the Balkan Wars as a whole, looking at the costs, what went wrong, how the region looked as these wars ended, etc. So now we're picking back up in August of 1913 after the Treaty of Bucharest has resolved the war between Bulgaria and its Balkan neighbors, but before the final treaty with the Ottomans has been agreed. On August the 2nd, despite everything that had happened up to this moment, Tsar Ferdinand and his two sons rode through Sofia on horseback at the head of a triumphal parade featuring returning soldiers. People threw flowers, and I imagine... The motions must have run high and been, well, rather mixed. A Russian diplomat viewing the spectacle said at the moment, quote, The Bulgarian soldiers and their brown service uniforms, spoilt by sun and rain, bore traces of extreme fatigue on their emaciated and sunburnt faces. But nevertheless, they marched with spirit and pride. Behind the infantry, ghost-like horses dragged the guns. Most of the generals whose names had become so popular in 1912 were with their troops. And the population of the town greeted them calmly and sympathetically, recognizing that they had done their whole duty and had deserved well of their country. Most of the soldiers taking part in the march were adorned with flowers, and so were King Ferdinand and his two sons, who headed the procession on horseback and were greeted by the crowd without the slightest sense of hostility. End quote. So, I imagine how surreal that scene must have been. The army marching in triumph after leading the country through such a catastrophe. It was a strange time for many who were trying to figure out what to do next. In particular, this is the case for many minorities throughout the region. Post-Second Balkan War, while many Bulgarians now lived in Bulgaria for the first time, the country also acquired some minorities, mainly Turks and Greeks. Now, I've talked before about how Bulgaria had policies towards living in the country that were different, well, yeah, basically broken into two. So there was one set of policies for the Greeks from the so-called old lands, essentially those who'd been living in what was legally Bulgaria for decades, and then an entirely different set of policies for Greeks living in the quote-unquote new lands, who had, you know, just gone from being Ottoman subjects to Bulgarian ones. Now, the Greeks who had been living in Bulgaria now had their autonomous status ended, resulting in their churches and schools being seized by the state. Ironically, just months before the First Balkan War began, the Greek minority had finally been granted the right to establish private schools and get funding for them, joining Muslims, Jews, and Armenians in the status. But even when their autonomy ended, they were still allowed to remain where they were, you know, physically speaking. Greeks in newly conquered lands, by contrast, were pressured or even forced to leave so they could be replaced by Bulgarian refugees. 
In other cases, Greeks were simply pressured to identify as Bulgarians from now on, a similar status to many Bulgarians living in Greece and Serbia. Of course, all this was further complicated by the fact that simply settling who was Greek and not was well, not as simple as you would guess. There were ethnic Greeks who spoke Bulgarian, ethnic Bulgarians who identified as members of the Greek patriarchate, and every manner of combination in between. For example, of the ethnic Bulgarians who were members of the patriarchate, some abandoned the church to fully integrate into the Bulgarian identity the state wanted for them, while others decided to simply emigrate to Greece and try to become Greek there. But regardless, after the Second Balkan War, anyone who could in any way be connected with Greece was under suspicion and often persecuted, both by the state and by individuals. Shops were boycotted, speaking Greek was banned, Greek students were forced to attend Bulgarian schools, and from this point, Greeks were officially treated the same as Armenians, Russians, and other Orthodox people, meaning they were permitted to worship in the Bulgarian Orthodox Church, but not in their own churches. Still, it's worth pointing out that there weren't many Greeks living in Bulgaria at the time, the overall numbers are still pretty small. For example, Greek data shows the number of refugees from Bulgaria in the years leading up to 1914 as a total of 486 people. So, despite the intense discrimination Greeks in Bulgaria felt, they still didn't emigrate to Greece en masse. However, Greeks living in new Bulgarian territories did, with nearly 36,000 leaving between 1912 and 1916. So, you're kind of seeing the difference between the two sets of policies. Well, you know, there was still definitely a kind of crackdown in, in kind of for Greeks living in the old Bulgarian land, so to speak. That didn't trigger a lot of mass migration, whereas the more overt pressure to migrate from the newly conquered lands was a lot stronger. Still, while many saw Greeks as traitors who had stabbed Bulgaria in the back, Others pushed back on their government's discriminatory policies, noting that they have lived fine with these Greeks for, you know, centuries usually at this point. Now, interestingly, in the period after the Second Balkan War, the Greek government decided that instead of maintaining its past position in favor of more autonomy for Greeks in Bulgaria, it now simply wanted them to leave Bulgaria and move to Greece. Now, the reason was that Greece now found itself with a substantial Bulgarian minority in its newly acquired territories, and it feared that if it asked for Greeks in Bulgaria to get autonomy, this would simply trigger a reciprocal request for Bulgarians in Greece. And the Greeks had no interest in giving Bulgarians in Greece any sort of autonomy, so they would rather sort of, you know, basically destroy the old Greek communities in Bulgarian lands rather than have to grant Bulgarians in what was now Greece these kinds of rights. In fact, a statement from the Bulgarian government said as much when they said, quote, Bulgarian public opinion would greet with delight any official Greek statement confirming that hereafter the Bulgarian element in Greek Macedonia would be treated similarly to the Greeks in Bulgaria, end quote. In other words, it was a feeling that, again, even with these recent policy changes, Greeks in Bulgaria were still treated relatively well and that, you know, basically their treatment was much better than the treatment of Bulgarians in these early you know, months and years in newly acquired territories in Greece. So, yeah, there, there was this question of how to kind of balance these minority policies, and this was going on throughout the region. Now, in October of 1913, 
the Radoslavov government decreed that all refugees coming into Bulgaria would be required to settle in the newly liberated territories in order to strengthen the Bulgarian element there. As a result, by June of 1914, around 65,000 Bulgarians would be settled in western Thrace, increasing the Bulgarian population there by about 50%. The Bulgarian authorities also resolved to push those living in this area who had more complicated identities to simply become quote-unquote fully Bulgarian. So again, it's this process we're seeing throughout the region where everyone is trying to create, kind of to take the newly conquered territories they have and make them as ethnically homogenous as possible in order to strengthen their claims, which frankly is a little bit ironic considering uh, both the Balkan states and the great powers generally haven't seemed to care at all about what you know ethnic identities the people living in these territories had. But still, you can kind of understand why this was important for them, even if it had such a difficult kind of cost for people on the ground. Now, Todorcheva writes how, quote, It was the opinion of the Bulgarian national brokers that this population had developed Greek national feeling only in the last 50 years or so, that under the watchful eye of Bulgarian officials, it could rediscover its true allegiances, end quote. So this is also the case. We've already seen it with a lot of, you know, Bulgarian Macedonians identifying as Bulgarians, where, you know, the newly, the, the people who kind of newly conquered these territories would simply say that any inconvenient national identities were simply something brand new or a result of brainwashing and yada, yada, yada. And that surely in time, everyone would come back to the correct view of the world, the correct opinion about their identity. So in the aftermath of the Second Balkan War, people living in every Balkan state, including Romania and Turkey, were being forced to change their identities, to leave their ancestral homes, or generally to stay and face threats of violence as the Balkan states worked towards creating homogenous national states that the European great powers had well, placed on a pedestal. Right, The rest of Europe had shown them that uh, these kind of ethnically you know, more homogenous nation states are what any great you know, modern state should aspire to. And I think that's important that it's easy to kind of portray these as being something sort of uniquely Balkan, but really the Balkans are following the lead set by the European great powers. Now, things basically got to move even more quickly and became more complicated in Western Thrace. Again, I, uh, the newly conquered bit of Bulgaria that went along the Aegean Sea, when on August the 16th, the people there declared themselves to be the Republic of Gyumri. Now, this was done while Bulgaria had kind of withdrawn from that area during the Second Balkan War, and now the territory had been assigned to Bulgaria, but and the kind of Greek troops had withdrawn, so there was a moment where no foreign troops were there whatsoever. The, the region was kind of just left on its own until the Bulgarians would have time to reoccupy it. And so before Bulgarian troops returned, local Turks and Polmaks decided to take the opportunity to declare their independence because, well, together they made up about 79% of the population there. I mentioned that Bulgaria will basically soon start uh, having a lot of Bulgarian refugees settle there to change that you know, demographic number, but still at this point, the overwhelming majority are ethnic Bulgarian or ethnic Turkish Muslims. You can find a territory of, or kind of map of the territory and the flag they used in the blog post of this episode. But although this new government did establish a local militia, they ultimately decided not to resist Bulgarian occupation in October. Though a few elements of the government continued to kind of operate in secret after this, 
but they knew that they didn't really stand a chance in open fighting against the Bulgarian state. And so it seems they decided to kind of bide their time and see if maybe perhaps in the future their fortunes might change and they could revive their idea for an independent republic. Now, over in Serbia, despite winning much more territory than it had anticipated in the Balkan Wars, the mood was summed up by Prime Minister Pasic when he stated, quote, The first round is won. Now we must prepare for the second round against Austria. End quote. In other words, in the eyes of Serbia, they had just liberated the Serbs living under Ottoman rule, so now they had to liberate the Serbs living under Austro-Hungarian rule. The British ambassador in Vienna wrote a prophetic letter writing, quote, As soon as peace is restored in the Balkans, the Austrian authorities anticipate that Serbia will begin a far-reaching agitation in the Serb-inhabited districts of the dual monarchy. And, as this country cannot allow any dismemberment of her provinces without incurring the danger of the whole edifice crumbling down, we have all the elements in the near future of another violent crisis in this part of the world, which may not unlikely end in the final annexation of Serbia by the dual monarchy. That, however, will lead to a war with Russia and possibly to a general conflict in Europe. End quote. So, definitely a bit of foreshadowing there. So, Serbia was now emboldened and self-confident that it could ultimately win that war against Austria-Hungary, especially because Russia's behavior towards Bulgaria and the Balkan Wars meant that Serbia was Russia's only remaining ally in the region. So, Serbia was now determined to fight Austria-Hungary, and Russia felt it had no choice but to back them because Serbia was their only ally in the region. And the Austro-Hungarians felt that the Germans would back them up no matter what, because that's what they had been told. And thus, the Rube Goldberg machine that would soon kick off the deadliest war the world had ever seen was slowly being put into place. Now, in the wake of these new diplomatic realities, Tsar Ferdinand was finally forced to abandon the kind of flexible diplomacy that we've seen him thrive on. Stephen Constant writes how, quote, it was mortifying enough for Ferdinand, after years of being the object of rival wooing of Austrian Russia, to be forced into the distasteful role of a suitor for Vienna's favor. End quote. But, knowing this was his only avenue for eventually reversing the Treaty of Bucharest, Ferdinand began to build on that relationship. So, you know, what I just described, because Russia now feels it has no choice but to back Serbia, Russia no longer is an option as a Bulgarian ally. And basically the only potential friend Bulgaria really has is Austria-Hungary. So Bulgaria has no choice but to, you know, head that way to Vienna, hat in hand, and hope that they can find some kind of agreement. However, the fact the Austrians knew of the provisions of that 1912 treaty between Bulgaria and Serbia, in which Bulgaria committed to fight against Austria if they were invaded by Serbia, did make this a little bit awkward. Now, you'll recall the Bulgarians didn't take that part of the treaty very seriously, but still it was there and it was known in Vienna. Another awkward element was the fact that Romania was an Austrian ally. So for Bulgaria to become a formal ally of Austria-Hungary, they would need to kind of bury the hatchet with a country that had just stabbed them in the back. Now the irony was, as Ferdinand very correctly pointed out to the Austrians, that the Romanians desperately wanted Transylvania and would likely join the Entente and fight against Austria if given the chance. In other words, Ferdinand was saying, hey, listen, we're a much better ally to you right now than Romania. Romania can't wait to stab you in the back. Well, 
The final issue in all of this was the German Kaiser, famous for his shifting moods and opinions. And basically, he at this particular moment detested Ferdinand, and so he pushed back hard on Bulgaria becoming an ally of Austria-Hungary and by extension of Germany. So, you can imagine the intense frustration of Ferdinand and Bulgaria diplomatically. The states that had just betrayed them in the Second Balkan War were close to both of the major European alliance networks, making it extremely difficult for Bulgaria to join either of them. So, for now, the big challenge of Bulgaria is to overcome its intense diplomatic isolation. Now, a related issue to that was the financial one. I talked in the last episode about basically how expensive the Balkan Wars were. Bulgaria now desperately needed money to finance reconstruction, to finance integrating these new territories, and to just pay off all the money it had borrowed to fund the wars. Ferdinand wanted to get a loan from France to kind of balance his getting closer with the central powers. Remember, he's still trying to look for ways to exercise his kind of flexible diplomacy, but Russia categorically vetoed this. They didn't want their allies getting close to Bulgaria in any way, insisting that Bulgaria should only be allowed to get financial assistance from one of the Entente powers if it agreed to become a Russian vassal. Again, minor aside, the more I cover Bulgarian history, the more baffling it becomes to me that Russia is portrayed as Bulgaria's great friend because, my God, they really just screw Bulgaria over time and time again. But that's a talk for another day. So, while this is all happening diplomatically in the summer and the fall of 1913, uh, while I mentioned there are various Balkan states who are working to assert their authority over their new territories, this is already provoking a backlash specifically in Macedonia. Well, no big surprise. Foreign power trying to kind of exercise its control over Macedonia provokes backlash. Yeah, not, a, not exactly headline-grabbing material, but in any case, in August, the VMRO met with Albanian revolutionaries and decided that they would work together to lead an uprising against Serbia. So, on the 21st of August, the VMRO issued a directive instructing its members to rebuild their networks and to prepare for that uprising. Now, the aim was for the uprising to begin in early October, but as we've seen so many times, it ended up breaking out early, in this case on September the 12th, resulting in incomplete preparation. Now, this occurred when an Albanian revolutionary was surrounded by Serbian troops, leading local Albanian and Bulgarian militia to rush to his rescue. As more troops were funneled in by both sides, fighting escalated, and soon the entire region around Debar, a town just north of Lake Ohrid, in the kind of on the modern Albanian northern Macedonian border, rose in rebellion. So this is the bit of Macedonia that's kind of farthest away from Bulgaria, closer to Albania. Now, the revolutionaries quickly captured the towns of Debar and Ohrid, giving the uprising its name, the Ohrid-Debar Uprising. Hundreds of Serbian soldiers and their equipment were captured, and the towns were decked out in Bulgarian flags and quickly elected new Bulgarian leaders. However, soon they learned that Greek troops, at the request of Serbia, were crossing the border to the south to come to the aid of the Serbian army. The insurgents tried to contact the Greeks and urged them to withdraw, which they actually agreed to do for some reason, but still, now they were only facing the Serbs. However, this kind of program, the, the kind of trying to talk with the Greeks and figure out how to respond to Greek intervention, led to a delay in two days in the plan to kind of progress and take Bitula and central Macedonia. 
And this two-day delay in the plan of the uprising gave the Serbs more time to prepare and bring up reinforcements. The Serbs, for their part, were taking this very seriously, having basically declared this to be a new war and mobilizing 100,000 soldiers, in addition to getting help from the secret organization the Black Hand to put down the uprising. Now, when the insurgents did begin their attack towards Bitola, a brutal two-day battle broke out in a mountain pass during which the Serbs made many failed attempts to advance despite their use of artillery and machine guns. Ultimately, however, the insurgents were forced to pull back to the area between lakes Ohrid and Prespa. By September the 20th, the Albanian forces decided to disband and retreat over the border into Albania, and upon hearing this news, the Bulgarian units decided to give up and do the same, following their Albanian sort of comrades into Albania. So, the uprising had lasted just eight days, and going up a full going up against a kind of full national army equipped with modern military equipment, it does seem that they stood little chance of actually holding on to this territory. Unsurprisingly, the aftermath was bloody and brutal, with Serbian forces burning dozens of villages and killing thousands of people, both in the regions which rose up and in other parts of Macedonia, leading to around 30,000 Bulgarian and 25,000 Albanian refugees to flee into Albania, and from there, most of those Bulgarians would ultimately travel to Bulgaria proper. Now, while that uprising was ongoing, on September 19th, the Treaty of Constantinople was signed, formally ending the war between Bulgaria and the Ottomans. This replaced the old straight-line border uh, with a new one which returned Adrianople to the Ottomans. Now, while the previous border put many of the major fortifications of Thrace in Bulgarian hands, putting the Ottoman capital perpetually at risk, the new one pushed the border back and made Constantinople far more secure. You can see a kind of map in Bulgarian, though, comparing the borders in the blog post, and you can kind of see what I mean. Otherwise, the treaty focused on minority rights. People living in Ottoman territories the Bulgarians just acquired were allowed to request Ottoman citizenship. Muslims in these territories were exempted from mandatory Bulgarian military service. Muslims would be treated equally, meaning many Pomaks who had been forced to convert to Christianity were allowed to become Muslims again. And the Bulgarians from eastern Thrace, which the Ottomans just retook, were allowed to return to their homes. However, less than two months later, the Edirne Agreement revoked the rights of Bulgarians in eastern Thrace to replace and returned them, or replace them rather, with Ottoman refugees from newly acquired Bulgarian territories. So initially, Bulgarian and the Ottomans agreed on a kind of right to return, but they shortly afterwards changed their minds and decided to just do more of a population exchange. Then, on November 24th, new elections were held. This was necessary because while the liberals had taken over, they still needed an actual majority in the National Assembly in Sofia to really govern. Radoslavov hoped that blame for the recent disasters would fall on the conservatives who had led the country, and that while his government had been the one to negotiate the final peace treaties, they would escape blame for them. Another interesting thing to note, this was Bulgaria's first election under a purely proportional system, though the newly acquired territories were not really fully set up and so they didn't participate in the election. And if you don't know what a proportional system is, instead of having kind of districts, which have usually first past the post, so whoever you know wins a majority in the district gets to replay, kind of re represent that district, proportional means 
you know, if one political party gets 6% of the vote nationally, then they get 6% of the seats regardless of where it is. Whereas in the kind of first past the post district system, you could win 6% in every district and you would get nothing. So generally proportional systems are a little more fair and they're much better for smaller minority parties. Short, long story short, Radoslavl's plan did not pan out. Instead, the liberal coalition headed by Radoslavl failed to win a majority, getting only about 39% of the vote and just under half the seats. Uh, often with proportional systems, there's a cap like you need to get, say, 4% in order to participate. So usually, you know, you get a little bit more seats than the percentage you won because you're kind of compensating for the, the percentage that gets lost. Now, this certainly wasn't because support for the conservatives had held firm. Uh, they indeed were blamed for the disaster of the Balkan Wars, and the electorate evaporated from more than half to about 7%. Instead, the second, third, and fourth largest parties were the agrarians and the two socialist parties, which together garnered more than 42%, compared to just 19% in the previous elections. So again, the agrarians and the socialists now more than doubled their performance in the last elections, and these are largely parties who would just sort of blanket oppose the war. So anti-war parties won big. The agrarians became the second largest party by winning majorly in the villages, while the socialists won major support in towns. This was particularly noteworthy because the wars had been difficult for the agrarians, as their Druzhby sort of cooperatives had not been able to operate and their newspaper could not be published, though members did form kind of secret cells within the army. Their newspaper only resumed publication three months before the election, so there wasn't even a lot of time for them to kind of ramp up a proper electoral campaign. Southern Dobrija, which you know, had just been taken by Romania, had also been a major agrarian stronghold because it's a very agricultural region. And so the per essentially, the agrarians performing so well, despite all these setbacks, really showed how much their strength was growing. Now, one bright side of this election is also that voter participation actually did increase quite substantially because, well, you can imagine Bulgarians felt the urge to have their voices heard after the chaotic political events of the previous years. But the ultimate result was that the liberals under Radoslavov retained power with a shaky minority government, and as a result, the prime minister would soon call for another round of elections in the spring in the hope of finally obtaining the majority he needed. So, as a result, the 16th National Assembly only met for a few days in December before it was dissolved. Otherwise, the final months of 1913 saw the Bulgarian Exarchate formally move its headquarters from Constantinople to Sofia. So, you know, ending centuries of existence there. Well, they didn't exist for centuries, but, uh, you know, the, the kind of presence of a Bulgarian church there. So, you know, it's interesting because in a way this move kind of mimicked the movement of refugees all over the region. As many Bulgarian institutions decided that it was finally time to relocate to within Bulgaria, so you could see it as kind of a last grasp, kind of dying gasp of the kind of more multicultural Ottoman world as everything is now kind of moving into these more, you know, homogenous ethnic nation states. So with that, Constantinople became a little less Bulgarian and lost one of its more Bulgarian institutions. And that wraps up 1913 a year which began with Bulgaria on the brink of achieving so many of its national ambitions and has ended with the country financially destitute, politically unstable, diplomatically isolated, socially and militarily exhausted. 
The hope is that new elections in February can bring the Liberals a working majority, and from there they can begin the hard work of recovering from the Balkan Wars. But let's just say that's not going to be easy, as Ferdinand is learning even finding allies in Europe is proving exceptionally difficult. War clouds are gathering on the continent, and Bulgaria, beleaguered and exhausted, is simply trying to find its place, trying to figure out a way forward. So, next time, we'll see what that will be. How Bulgaria will kind of think about moving forward into the year 1914. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and and performed by the talented Teddy Raven. As always, you can check out bghistorypodcast.com for maps, timelines, list of important people, list of sources, all kinds of stuff for all episodes. So do check that out, and I will catch you in the next one.